I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Welcome to another episode of Undercurrents. Hello, Ben. What? Hello, Agnes. <laughs> How are you? Uh, we reversed the intro. We reversed the How intro. Exciting. Taking power back, you know. Um, how am I? I'm fully blocked up with allergies, as you can hear. It's not you coronavirus, I don't think. Although, if I'm dead in two weeks' Famous time. Famous last words. Lol. Oh, no, no, God. not lol at all. Um, well, it's sort of hitting, isn't it, Ben? <laughs> it is interesting. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm a bit concerned about the... the future in the short term at least of undercurrents to be honest yeah i'm not sure we can promise that we'll there aren't going to be weeks. many people who uh, <laughs> are coming to chatham house to do interviews no. in this time i'm afraid and we may not be allowed in the building uh, so, so unfortunately really you're going to have to treasure today's episode absolutely which and maybe fortunately is a belter it is a belter but also i was going to say if you really miss us maybe you've missed some episodes maybe you have there's almost case, 50 episodes on there now. Almost 50. Absolute crackers. Uh, have you got a favourite from the past, Ben? Ooh, I really enjoyed actually the second interview that we ever did, which was about the Mafia oh. in southern Italy. Yeah. A cracker. Yeah, Calabrian Mafia. That was Helen Fitzwilliam. Exactly. Uh, based off a World Today cover story. That was beautiful. If you haven't heard that, it really is worth coming back to listen to. Yeah. The White Widows. Exactly. And uh, what, what, how about you? What would you say? Um, I really enjoyed the interview with Soraya Chamali, which is one of our least listened to. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. It is. Um, on, <laughs> Come on, guys. On Women's Anger. Um, yeah. Because I think a lot of you lads have seen it and thought, that's not for me. Oh. And, uh, Agnes with the hard truths. It's true. And a couple of our male colleagues I know thought that, and so I have forced them to go back and listen. And they they think it's really great. And they so. Do us a favour, put that one on. Don't judge a podcast by its And it gender. was it's a joint me and Ben interview, and, yeah. and Ben gets harangued by two women at certain points. It's quite fun. Um, and I'm not equal to it. <laughs> <laughs> but Ben, um, who did you speak to this week? So this week, I had a conversation with Ishulua Akintunde, who is the uh, Academy Fellow in the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme uh-huh. uh, currently. And he is... He does some really, really fascinating work on climate financing. So basically what that means is we've got this call at the moment around the world for much more intense action on climate change and people need to start changing the way that they live and the way that their companies function and also how governments are addressing these problems of climate change. But the big question is how is this going to be paid for? And who should be paying for it? And it led us into some really interesting different um, avenues around should specific countries, which historically have benefited so much from burning fossil fuels, be helping other countries who maybe haven't had that opportunity to offset the effects of climate change? And yeah, it was awesome. very interesting. Because cool, I thought that recently about uh, the flybee uh, bailout. Mm. Because flybee, classically fly short journeys often within the UK. Yeah. And we're being told to stop flying if we can. Yeah. So people aren't flying. But then the government doesn't want that company to fail. <laughs> yeah, of course, because jobs Cause and livelihoods. Jobs. And... So you're, they're, they're saying to everybody, don't do this. But then still having to like bail out the companies that support that you know as a anyway i just exactly. think it's a really just interesting a quandary. There that people yeah. need to sort of think about a bit more yeah. yeah so we had a conversation about that but who did you speak to well i was lucky enough to speak to an author from our insight series lovely which is a book series that we published jointly with brookings called uh, jamie gasketh who is senior lecturer at the university of birmingham and his book is called secrets and spies uk intelligence accountability after iraq and snowden basically about We had a long chat about holding intelligence agencies to account, Mm. especially in the UK. But he was really interesting on the history of MI6 and MI5 and DCHQ. Yeah. uh, Because I just realised I didn't really know when they appeared. Exactly. And, you know, when they came into public light and all that sort of things. Yeah. Um, And then, obviously, I asked him who his favourite spy was. Classic. Because it's important. Absolutely. Who is your favourite spy? Should we do it in the outro? Yeah. Okay. Listen later to him. Just a little (laughs) teaser there. Well, hope you enjoy listening.
So I'm here, luckily, with Dr Jamie Gasketh, who is a reader in foreign policy and international relations at the University of Birmingham and the author of a new book called Secrets and Spies, UK Intelligence, Accountability, After Iraq and Snowden. And this is part of the Chatham House Insights book series, which is published jointly with the Brookings Institute. Thank you so much for joining us, Jamie. Thank you. Thank you very much, Agnes. Um, and congratulations on the book. It's very exciting. Um, so what's, what's your book about then? <laughs> uh, well, stuff. It's about um, intelligence and security agencies and how do we hold them accountable when there's an awful lot that they do that the public just doesn't know about uh, and even those people who are tasked with uh, scrutinising what they do can only get a flavour of the full picture of it because these tasks are so complex. So... It's about trying to think about how the public can be um, uh, comfortable with what the intelligence and security agencies are doing and maybe how that scrutiny could be improved. This might seem like a silly question, please forgive me. <laughs> but how much do you think literature and and films have shaped the way that, especially in Britain, we view spies? You know, Le Carre, you know, is there this idea that you can't ever really trust an intelligence agency or they are really shady and so we're never really going to feel like we know them is are we sort of has literature basically maybe let these agencies get away with quite a lot reputationally well it's an interesting question i think um some of what they do is obviously very distorted the classic thing is this license to kill that, mm. that, that james bond has got um which the agencies uh, insist it comes in the intelligence services act 1994 there was a section seven which said that Officials um, are able to do um, criminal activities if they've got the, the, the authorization of the Secretary of State. Yeah. So in theory, that actually is a license to kill. Yeah. The agencies say that they don't exercise that anymore. They sort of did a few, got involved in a few assassinations in the post-war period and in the 1960s. Uh, Daphne Parks, the, the person to check out there. But then, um, oh no, go on. Sorry, you, you can't. You can't just dangle those sort of things oh, I don't in front know of us. About the specifics, but, uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, but where, where did it happen? Well, I, well, I, I think there was some element of Britain's involvement in some African countries. There right. was a suggestion okay. that there was... Uh, it would generally be uh, u the use of proxies and things like that, right. I guess. But it's not a widespread policy. It was quite isolated. And broadly, uh, the idea is that actually there is a fictional kind of representation of, of the secret agent, mm -hmm. which people who study intelligence get very annoyed about because the agent is... Is the person that the official is kind of co-opting to give them intelligence. It's not. It's not that James Bond wouldn't be a secret agent. Are such. you saying it's not factually correct? No, sorry about that. Because oh, <laughs> he's, he's the intelligence officer, um, and the people who he gets the information from are the are your agent. So there's an element of, uh, ironically, there's kind of an element of potential truth, but actually in practice there isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, that an awful lot of intelligence work. My sense of it is that it's going to be reasonably dull and kind of repetitive but it's terribly important that it's you know searching records it's winding through cctv or through data sets and trying to understand patterns and those sorts of things so uh, it varies according to the agency so some of the agencies might be closer to our kind of fictional picture i guess than others but we sort of we give them more more of a glamorous eye sheen than we should don't we well yeah i think it probably helps with recruitment and stuff yeah. I think you'd, be, you'd be disappointed i guess the nearest to the fictional kind of world is mi6 but even then you know i think most of their kind of day-to-day stuff would yeah you'd be, you know you would be it wouldn't be quite the glamour or the money around yes. that you would be hoping for also obviously you know um other intelligence agencies are available yes that's uh. it. <laughs> well you have mi5 which is the yeah. security service so they focus more on domestic uh, threats, hostile state activity, terrorism, criminality. MI6 focuses on abroad, so okay. they deal with threats abroad. Uh, and then GCHQ um, focuses on communications and data um, uh, and trying to find information about that. And GCHQ will give information to signals intelligence and, 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 and uh, communications intelligence to the military, particularly they're their kind of key customer. But, but also uh, government generally. So each one does a little bit slightly separate kind of activity, some at home, some abroad, um, some more human-centred, some more technological. But there's a lot of overlap. So MI6 people will operate at home um, and try and get into terrorist networks in certain key communities in the UK. MI5 operators will be working abroad in embassies, 
trying to find intelligence and, and information there as well. And how old are those respective agencies? You know, who came first? Well, it's a good question. Most of, most of the um, these agencies emerge from the First World War, mm-hmm. that kind of period. Originally, the kind of GCHQ emerges from cipher um, work, trying to decode um, military signals and communications during the First World War, yeah. and then that develops into cipher school and then kind of takes its, its current kind of... Um, form after the Second World War. And MI6 and MI5, they kind of emerged from the First World War as well and that kind of period. The need to try and analyse um, threats, particularly from Germany at the time, um, and German agents operating in the UK and trying to uh, deconstruct those networks. So they all kind of emerged at a pretty similar time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because it's quite, it was it's there's a kind of long-standing history in, the, in Britain of people being quite resistant to state authority. So in the 19th century, you had riots when they tried to set up the Metropolitan Police because people thought it was really intrusive to have a permanent police force, you know. Uh, and it, and A.J.B. Taylor famously said that, you know, I think he said, I think it was um, gendered language, but I think he said an Englishman, you know, in sort of 1910, you know, didn't have, wouldn't have a passport to go abroad, you might not pay um, tax, you might not have any social security. I think in 1900, probably, he's probably thinking of... You know, so you actually didn't have much involvement in the state, and it's only the kind of war experience that really these kind of big agencies start to develop. How how is that different, for example, from the number of Americans who have passports? Mm. You know, do you think do you think we're that we the Brits are that separate in that sense? Or well, well I think, I think or, well, you, or sort of the way you didn't need one. You know, you yeah. didn't need government authorization to go in and out of borders at the time, which is you obviously do now. Yeah. You did after once the First World War comes in. I think just before then, uh, they introduced these restrictions to try and restrict the potential flow of future kind of spies and fifth columns and things. Um, I think, I mean, Britain, you know, uh, the statistics haven't gotten to hand, but we're an incredibly well-travelled bunch, actually. Uh, you know, the, the statistic about um, only 10% of the US population or something owns a passport or something like yeah. that, isn't it? Whereas in the UK, actually, you know, we're, we're, we rank very highly in, among countries. Um, so we do have a lot of interactions abroad, but then that then feeds into more interactions means more risk, I guess. There is an element of that, that if you're more open to the world economy, if you're more open to interaction with other cultures, mm. you've got a big a big populations here who have grandparents and great-grandparents from other countries, then that's going to that's gonna mean you have more contacts abroad, but obviously the, it comes with attendant risks. And so... You said that obviously we were, you know, very anti the introduction of Bobby's, Robert Paul yeah. Robert Peel, policeman. <laughs> so how were the security agencies introduced? You say in the post-war period, were they were they done sort of under the radar? Presumably it wasn't, it wasn't announced and opened by the Queen. No, yeah. uh, no. So these were very much secret organisations. <laughs> yeah. Um, security service was mentioned in was it nineteen fifty two. In, in Parliament, I think, in response to a question, I think GCHQ was... It was very controversial in the 1960s. Chapman Pincher, who was a, a famous journalist for the Daily Express, he revealed that the UK was tapping transatlantic cables and the GCHQ was doing it. So for the first time, he talked about what the kind of activities that GCHQ was doing, which was the government wasn't very happy about. And then in the 1980s, MI6 kind of went on the record for the first time as part of the Spycatcher affair. Um, A former MI5 officer was uh, trying to publish his memoirs, um, Peter Wright, I was trying to remember his name, Peter Wright, and uh, the government was trying to block it, and during the, in the court papers, it came out that he was mentioning these agencies, and so they had to kind of avow the fact that they existed, but... Actually, it's very recent. That this That's incredibly became, it's recent. Incredibly recent. Well, it's, and, you know, and so then they kind of thought, well, OK, we're going to need some legislation here. Yeah. Now it's kind of the secret's out. So in 1989, the Security Services Act regulates the MI5, and it begins with the first line famously that it's there will continue to be a security service. So uh-huh. it's a funny piece of legislation because it's saying this stuff will carry on. Yeah. And usually, usually, you know, legislation starts stuff up. Uh, and then 1994... GCHQ and MI6 under the Intelligence Services Act, they they then uh, became part, you know, avowed and, and, and legislation governed their, their activities. And presumably that meant that sort of just from an HR perspective, mm. staff could be more protected because they existed, yeah. um, you know, legislation around. Because obviously it's quite famously for a long time you weren't allowed to be 
known to be a homosexual if, mm. you know, if certain security services for very old-fashioned reasons. It's always amusing me how anybody you know who works in Cheltenham is an accountant. I really love that. What do you do? <laughs> I'm an accountant. He's yeah, like, oh, right, you work for TCHQ. <laughs> so, yeah, so presumably they could be regulated. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, there was a. I mean, one of the things that, that kind of uh, provoked this as well was there was a dispute around whether people in GCHQ were uh, allowed to belong to a trade union, for right. instance. So, so that was part of it. Uh, yes, it, it does. It, I mean, actually, the agencies, a lot of them, did welcome this legislation because it meant that they could define the boundaries of what they do. They could actually it's sort of easier to recruit people if you're a slightly more open organisation because you <laughs> yeah. can, yeah, you can, you can acknowledge who you are and, and whether the fact that you exist. We'll come back to sort of the more international scene in a bit, but you know, was this the same time that the CIA was being set up? You know, was Britain leading on this front internationally, or you know, the KGB? Well, the FSB has been around for years and years and years. You know, what was the international sort of security scene and where did we sit within it? I, I, we were quite late, I'd we say, quite late. To, to doing legislation. <laughs> Classic British. So there's a series of scandals in the 1970s uh, in the US that came out of revelations about what the CIA and others were doing. The Church Commission looked into their activities and there was a whole raft of legislation restricting what they were doing at right. the time. So they were already sort of a, a, you know, subject to that kind of scrutiny and we were, we were actually much later. Okay. There's quite a few things that just reminded me of something you just said. It's one of those curious things that actually it was you know, in the John Major administration, I think it was, that you could, for the first time in the Foreign Office, you could come out as, as gay. Um, yes, no, it was incredibly, incredibly yeah. late, even in, even in the Foreign day, Office. Yeah, no, I mean, the argument was around blackmail, wasn't it? Well, we've, we've been very late on many things, I would argue. <laughs> it's probably the easiest way to cover that. Um, so your, bu- your book is looking at sort of accountability in the UK from specific points. Is it from, from Iraq, from Afghanistan? What? Yeah, my broad focus, I guess, is, is the last sort of two decades. Yeah. But in order to understand what's going on there, I do kind of have to reach back a little bit and, and, and talk about how some of these processes emerged. Yeah. Um, so if you're thinking about how... These agencies came out into the light, as I say, in the late 80s, early 90s, we have legislation. And then there's also uh, various cases where increasingly people were starting to ask for security services to give evidence in court about why they suspected people or why they came to apprehend people, you know. Um, and, uh, and so it, th- that's partly why legislation had to come in because you had to, you know, if you're going to give evidence in a court, you have to acknowledge who you are and who you work for and where these kind of things come from. In, you know, immigration tribunals start getting security service officials giving evidence about why this person's a danger to the British public or whatever. Right. So um, it sort of starts to creep in in the 1990s. So you ha- I have to talk about that a little bit in the book. But the most, most of the focus is the last kind of two decades. Obviously, you've had to go back a bit, but from a layman's perspective. It does feel like Afghanistan and Iraq were really sort of a point where the intelligence services in the UK were put under a spotlight slightly. You know, was that a big change? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was a big change, partly when you think about Iraq, one of the big changes was that government was overtly justifying its policy using intelligence, and it was putting stuff out into the public domain in a way that would never happen before. Mm. You know, the government might say, we have intelligence that, or this is, you know, we will argue this, and it's supported by intelligence, but you wouldn't usually put actual intelligence product, which is the kind of, you know, the, the finished intelligence assessment, into the public domain, which yeah. is what they did. In February uh, 2002, the Blair government issued a dossier not the dodgy dossier that came later, but a dossier about um, Iraq and, it, and its, um, its concealment of, of WMD, and it put it forward as based on intelligence. And so when you don't find WMD in Iraq, that's a major, major kind of crisis there for public trust in intelligence, yeah. um, which flows from the way the government has used it. And you can see it again and again. Also in the Libya intervention in 2011, there were parliamentary... Uh, comments about whether intelligence about Gaddafi's intentions were reliable and then crucially in 2013 when Parliament has a vote on whether to attack Syria uh, in order to coerce it into stopping using chemical weapons parliamentarians are saying you know the government's trying to base the case on intelligence again uh, this time the coalition government uh, under Cameron parliamentarians are saying how can we trust this intelligence that um, you know the government's saying that this uh, chemical weapons have been fired 
um, and the director, direction of the trajectory suggests that it's coming from government lines and all this kind of stuff and, uh, and the parliamentarians are saying how can we know and the government loses a vote uh, for the first time uh, since the 1780s on an issue of military action so that's a, that's a huge kind of uh, a blow there uh, and it directly emerges from this mistrust of the way intelligence operates the Afghanistan issue is a kind of a I, I think it's important to kind of split that into two kind of eras really there's an earlier era in the early era of the war on terror you've just had 9-11 in, in September 2001 all the agencies are scrabbling around to try and find intelligence about this threat that they've obviously uh, underappreciated uh, and you can see that there's slippage over ethics and people are kind of engaging in and supporting activities like mistreatment of detainees um, yeah, and it's really appalling and then after a year or two things start to kind of rationalise and people realise that they went too far and there are inquiries and there's revelations on, on mistreatment and that kind of thing. So that's really important for intelligence because it, it, cre it tarnishes the reputation of the agencies because they're getting involved in this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. When you say the agencies when you're talking about the first round, you're talking yeah. about the US and the UK together, are you? Uh, what I was particularly talking about is MI5, MI6. Okay, right. Uh, yeah. GCHQ isn't as hands-on because yeah. it's obviously involved in signals intelligence and communications intelligence so uh, it's it's not quite as complicit in this right. sense uh, what we're talking about is MI6 uh, officers either being in the room when mistreatment is occurring or being on the same base uh, and interviewing people soon after they've evidently had mistreatment this came out in a intelligence and security committee report in 2018 mm -hmm. which you can download um, where it details that the, actually some of these officers were concerned saying you know, and asking for advice from their senior um, officers in Whitehall saying what do I do here you know, mm -hmm. what's the guidance about or what happens when I see somebody being you know sleep deprived or, or put in stress positions or slapped you know and what am I supposed to do so there's, yeah. a, there's a kind of call there and in a couple of cases allegedly some people kind of you know across the line themselves so it's MI6 MI5 is receiving some of this intelligence at home. Right. Um, and knowing that that stuff has been going on. Yeah, and the ISC says, you know, in 2002, it's kind of worrying that memos went round talking about sleep deprivation. No officials comment on this, saying, is this appropriate? So there's a kind of a, there's an era there where I think, you know, people would probably generally acknowledge that maybe standards slipped. Um, and then it starts to kind of uh, improve a little bit, um, like I said, with re these revelations going public. I think it was 2005, Eliza Manning and Buller sent round a memo saying that people shouldn't be frightened to speak up about uh, when they hear about mistreatment and actually stopped MI6 officials coming in the building because she was really trying to firewall this and wow. thinking it was corrupting the organisation. So that was a really strong position there uh, and it starts to emerge. And then, so the other thing is, 2006 onwards, intelligence gets sort of mixed up with the, the military intervention in Afghanistan uh, that the UK agrees to move troops into Helmand province uh, and it's such a mess yeah. I mean the coordination of intelligence was really poor they didn't have a picture of of what was going what they were going into and they faced a, a sort of effectively an ambush um, and it was really fierce fighting some of the worst fighting in, in over 50 years um, and four, ultimately 451 uh, UK troops died in Afghanistan mm. from 2006 onwards so you know, that's a really serious intelligence, a poor coordination of intelligence. In fact, somebody even, um, Theo Farrell's book talks about this, somebody even uh, kind of posited that the, the mission should be to deploy troops and then build up knowledge about the area. It's like, <laughs> you don't build up knowledge of an area after you've deployed 3,500 troops. You, you start by doing the intelligence operation and work out what the threats you're going to face and then. You know, it's not armchair generaling to kind of, I don't think, to, oh, to identify that as a problem. So, I, did, I mean, that's something that there's never been an Afghanistan inquiry in the no. way that it has about Iraq um, and WND. Uh, and I think that's actually a real shame because we're putting, OK, only 250 troops or so into, into Mali at the moment. But, you know, has there been a, a rigorous intelligence assessment of actually what's going on in Mali? Who are the key players? What happens if somebody gets kidnapped? What do you do in this situation? Role-playing, different scenarios. It's, it's always, it still seems to me, and I, it might be wrong because I'm, I'm not involved in the decision-making process, but it still seems like they make a decision to intervene, they work out what forces they want to uh, allocate, 
and then they do a, a, a cursory intelligence assessment, and then and then the troops go, and it's like it should be the other way round. Yeah. How happy were the intelligence community about the way that the intelligence was used by politicians at that point? Because, yeah. like you say, it was new. They can't have been thrilled. <laughs> no, I mean, in the, you know, in the book, I, I quote uh, an official from MI6, very unhappy about the way the Afghanistan intervention was was playing out in two thousand six. It was seen as a kind of vanity project by the, the military, uh, which is the quote in the book, and uh, and uh, they weren't consulted about whether it was appropriate or mm. whether it was a good idea, and, and uh, there was a kind of cursory effort to kind of engage with them just before the interventions occurring. So, that, you know, they weren't very happy about that at all. And I, I think it's one of these funny things that, in some ways, my sense of... I mean, again, this is always partial because it depends who you've spoken to, but the people I've interviewed, my sense is that these agencies tend to be more on the cautious side that it's actually, and, uh, and sometimes in their memoirs, David Cameron com- complains about the fact that MI6 isn't coming up with fantastic ideas of how to intervene in Syria. Uh, it's like, I think they can see the, uh, the, the, the risks um, uh, and they tend to be less kind of gung-ho about intervention than, than politicians. So how do you think the intelligence services are going to change as a result of the investigations over the last 20 years? Do you think there's going to be any change? They are changing. Yeah. I think I really think they've. Well, the more you read about it, the more you understand it. Uh, I think they've changed significantly. Um, and in the book, I try and there's a few things that kind of feed into this. There's a generational shift. I think actually people, younger people today, are probably more resistant to accepting authority, and they expect a less hierarchical systems, and so they're more questioning. Um, and people seem to notice, seem to highlight this, where they kind of think that actually, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you you know, you wouldn't be as critical as junior officers are now about higher policy. Mm. Um, so there's a kind of generational shift, I think, there. The curious thing is that there's a generational shift slightly in that younger people now are more accepting of their data being held by people. So if you actually, you know, uh, obviously Liberty and a lot of NGOs get very concerned about government surveillance. And actually younger people tend to be less concerned about that stuff because they've already signed away their data rights to Apple or Microsoft or whoever it is. So you know, they perhaps can't see uh, quite so much difference in, sign- in the government kind of expect to be surveilled in some ways mm-hmm. now. So there's, there's changes there. They're much more reflective organisations. So they actually have ethics counsellors now, which is a development in the last two decades, where people are encouraged to actually speak out and talk about um, what they're doing and where their concerns about it. And if they don't feel that they can take part in an operation, then they are supposed to be able to kind of be reassigned or or kind of step out of that role if they feel that there's ethical concerns. Mm well, that's the official version I've got. I do wonder whether how practical that could be, because if you're constantly asking to be recused from uh, operations, then you're, a you're not going to have a career, but also you're not going to be a functioning member of the organisation, mm-hmm. are you? So, uh, I wonder in practice how effective that can be. So, there's generational changes, there's social changes, there's practical changes about uh, how they think about ethics and and, and what they're prepared to do, um, and I I, th- I would hope. I, I think that there's been learning in government about actually the stuff that was going on in the early 2000s didn't work. Mm. It created enormous reputational damage. Um, and so that's something to move away from, hopefully. What do you think the impact of a Brexit is going to have on intelligence sharing between you know, organisations that pretty much have been quite, quite tied together up until now? And B, Trump, because... Um, I thought it was really interesting that um, it was junior defence minister a couple of months last month said, you know, the important thing now that we've signed article, now that we are out of Europe, is that we align ourselves more closely with Europe when it comes to intelligence sharing than the US, which I thought was really interesting because he didn't need to say than the US, but he did. Mm. Will Trump's presidency have had an impact on intelligence sharing with the UK, do you think? Um... Well, I think it does because there is this... I mean, it's such a long-standing relationship between the UK and the US. Bruce, 1946, you know, the British-USA intelligence sharing agreement. Um, after the Second World War, where they'd shared a lot of intelligence, they decided to continue that relationship. Uh, and it's it's the most important intelligence relationship in the world, probably, and the most long-standing intelligence alliance that I, I can think of. So, I, you know, there's a, there's, those kind of networks don't die easily, even if you've got people um, heading up the, the, the government who are critical of intelligence. There's a kind of 
the blob is usually used uh, kind of negatively, but the blob is there that actually, you know, whatever the president is saying at any one moment, you know, actually the intelligence community itself will continue to cooperate with the UK and they'll be sharing intelligence uh, and that will continue going on uh, beyond, you know, the kind of specific little moments that, that Trump has. Uh, in, in some ways, the intelligence community in the US is probably going to be more aligned with the UK than perhaps maybe Trump is on some of these issues, particularly Russia, uh, and therefore they're, they're going to be more sympathetic and carry on those kind of sharing relationships. I mean, the Brexit, you were talking about Brexit, um, what impact that's going to have. I think that's it's really interesting because you would have thought that would have been an easy question to answer because you'd say, well, long-standing relationship, you know, Britain will always put that relationship first and then the Huawei decision comes about and you kind of think, wow, that's actually really challenging because for the first time um, that I can remember, the UK is is directly contravening US um, intelligence advice. Okay, it may be partly kind of deriving from the, you know the administration rather than the community perhaps but you know they're, they're taking a contrary position to the US which is risking that relationship in favor of China which you know, a lot of aspects of UK and US intelligence activity will be considering China as a hostile state mm -hmm. so to put a Chinese a company which is very much you know controlled by the Communist Party um, to put that uh, company's interests or that country's interests first is really is really Unusual. I mean, whether I mean, there is a suggestion that this is a bargaining chip, that when the UK comes to do a trade deal with the US, that maybe they'll row back on that decision, and and so it's there on the table. But it's, you know, it's a it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty <laughs> um, risky bid, I think. To, it's a high stakes. It's yeah, a high stakes it is. gamble, isn't it? Um, but also, like you say, on Europe, um, that Huawei decision goes against. Who, no, France, who, France recently, yeah. yeah. Um, so Australia, it's not even as if one's allied yeah. on that no. side either. No, and, it, and that is one of the contrary arguments to it, is that people have sort of said, well, you know, if we don't do this, then there's the risk that other people will steal a march on you with 5G. But actually so many other compar com comparative countries and close allies are not do doing the Huawei route that you wouldn't lose a lot of advantage um, if Australia, New Zealand, the US, France, and then Germany, and maybe Canada... If those countries don't adopt Huawei's system or don't allow it in, then then you know who who is who is it you're competing against that is is going to steal a march on yeah. you. It's pretty hard to see. It. On the Europe thing, militarily, Britain is so closely aligned with with much of Europe. You know, France we basically co-own airplanes together. You know, and the bigger things. Intelligence-wise, um, community, are we are we still really closely linked, or is it definitely the US, which is our sort of priority? Well, the five, it's, yeah, the US is the key relationship yeah. because the sheer, the sheer, when I spoke to officials about this, you know, there is no other country which quite has the perme, permeates so much of the UK's intelligence effort. Uh, but it's interesting that it's not entirely cosy. So you did get, I got the sense from some of the agencies that they were closer than others. GCHQ is right. incredibly close to NSA. Okay. MI6 and CIA, there's a kind of friendly rivalry there. I get the sense that there's a little bit of standoffishness. It's not quite as close. Um, when I when I suggested um, peer review to uh, a former head of the security service, um, actually the former chief of of the of MI6, could we have peer review? Maybe the Americans coming in and reviewing our operations, you know, just sort of spitting out a sandwich. <laughs> it was like. I mean, Absolutely you, not. You, know, you do get the impression like, that there are sort of yeah. rivalries that have been going on longer than sort yeah. of village fake marmalades. I know. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah, because the MI5 security service had an Australian uh, official come in and review their operation, so that was seen as okay. You yeah. Know, because they are, you know, in some way, in that sense, they're less seen as rivals or competitively than the US. Yeah. Okay. Well. I'm going to... Well, firstly, thank you so much for coming in. You should buy um, Jamie's book, which, again, is called Secrets and Spies, UK Intelligence Accountability After Iraq and Snowden. Uh, and you can buy it through the Chessmouse website. But I've got one last question for you. OK. Who's your favourite spy? What, fictional? Fictional. And you oh. can't say James Bond. Can I not say Smiley as well? Like, yeah, you can, say smiley. you can say Smiley. You can say Smiley. OK, so, but which, <laughs> which Smiley as well um, when it comes to what, an films? adaptation? Oh. Yeah. I think it'd have to be Alec Guinness. Yeah, it does. Oh, yeah, yeah. Much as I love um, the other chap, the, uh, Gary, the guy, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman was, was good. Yeah, he was good. But so why just... Smiley? 
Which, by the way, for listeners who don't know, it's the Carré. <laughs> if you haven't read some of the Smileys um, novels, yeah. you absolutely should. Which, which would be your favourite? Uh, well, I, I, I'm afraid I've only ever read one of the novels. That's why it came from the cold, I'm afraid. Which but is the, actually the best. Is it? Is it? Yeah. yeah. You've but nailed he has it. that freak out at the end when he's in the courtroom. Don't ruin it for Sorry. people. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Well, maybe he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he doesn't. Okay, George yeah. Smiley. Why is Smiley. that? Because do you think he encompasses sort of the classic British lie? Yeah, I guess. There's, there's something very British about him. I mean, he's very, he's very downbeat, but he's very smart. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, he's it, not glam. He's not glam. No, no, no that's it. Um, uh, but he's, it's you know he gets there in the end and he and he's super clever and uh, and he's underestimated and uh, and he does always do a bit of a Columbo like yeah. he pulls it out of the bag at the end and, yeah. oh by the way and everyone's like oh smiling like it, it. Yeah. yeah well I was going to say what the end was then too no, you uh, can't. Taylor Sanchez <laughs> <laughs> no don't ruin it for people yeah, no, but I'll yes <laughs> well thank you so much for coming in it's been really interesting Great. to talk to you um, and good luck with the book thank you very much cheers. All right, well, today I'm delighted to be joined by Ishilua Akintunde, who is the Mo Ibrahim Academy Fellow in the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme here at Chatham House. Mm. Um, and Ishilua, you're an expert in climate finance. Oh, expert. Is yeah. that? <laughs> you can... Yeah, I, I, I take the compliments well, yeah. <laughs> for the purposes of this interview, yes. <laughs> okay, there we go. I've, I've, I've defined it. There yeah. we are. Um, so could, you, could we maybe just begin by you explaining to me what we mean when we talk about climate finance. Um, Happy to be with you today, Ben. Um, Climate finance is a conceptually ambivalent um, terminology. Uh, It could mean different things to different people, depending on the context in which you speak. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, a farmer who invests some money into his or her um, crops in rural Africa or rural Nigeria, to mitigate uh, the effects of climate change or to make the crops to be uh, more climate resilient Mm. may be um, spending climate finance, right? Um, And that also goes for the socially responsible investor who is putting money into the capital market. If you ask him, he would say as long as the finances are ploughed towards climate mitigation and adaptation, is also investing in climate finance. So depending on the context, uh, but for the purposes of our conversation, I'd like to restrict it to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the financing mechanisms that have been pledged by developed countries to developing countries to help the developing countries to mitigate and adapt to the effects of climate change. Uh, that, to me, is um, the most traditional lens through which climate finance should be seen, without discounting the other, other smaller bits of it. And how was that process of financing agreed? Who, who decided who was going to pay what and on right, what? Right, so in, in 1992, in the um, build-up to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, where the uh, international mechanism for climate change was agreed upon. There were negotiations and conversations about how to finance this um, rapidly deteriorating tragedy, mm. I mean, finance the response to, to climate change. And there were a lot of sentiments about historical responsibility that developed countries have been historically responsible for um, climate change and developing countries are the most affected by the consequences of climate change, where over 100 million people could be pushed into poverty by climate impacts as soon as 2030, according to the World Bank. And guess what else is significant about 2030? That's the deadline we must cut greenhouse gas emissions by half if we must limit global temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Give a specific instance, Africa is the continent with perhaps the least uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but it's the continent that is most hit by the consequences of climate change. So when you consider it from the perspective, um, you understand what was weighing on the minds of the negotiators in the 90s when the resolve that developed countries must take um, 
take action. So from one perspective, it's a moral um, case. Mm. It's a moral action. It's a moral response to what's going on in the climate. From another perspective, it's also an effectiveness question. So if you mitigate climate change in every part of the world and you don't allow the rest of the world to respond to climate action or to you don't carry the other parts of the world along, you just discover that you are discounting in Africa what you are implementing in other parts of the world. Right. So, for example, the, the level of infrastructure that we have is enough to reach two degrees, which is the maximum that we cannot exceed, right? Two degrees of Two degrees of Celsius of warming, right? temperatures beyond um, uh, compared to pre-industrial levels. If we build additional infrastructures, additional coal plants, additional fossil fuel installations, we are, we are overshooting it, right? Mm-hmm. And many developing countries have that burden. They have that infrastructure gap and infrastructure deficit. And yes. they are saying developed countries have reached this stage by investing in fossil, by polluting the atmosphere and um, affecting the climate, that they also have a development case to make to also develop along those parameters. So if you must nudge them, if you must um, urge them to uh, s- to stay clear of those kind of investments, they need some incentive and Climate finance could be seen as as that kind of incentive. So that's the concern um, of the UNFCCC, and that's the philosophy, that's the spirit behind the provision of climate finance to developing countries. You mentioned sort of some of the ways that it's spent um, in an earlier answer, but is is it primarily used to finance activities around mitigating? climate change or is it more about adapting to the consequences of climate change? Mitigation and adaptation are mutually reinforcing. Mm. If you try to mitigate climate change without adapting to climate change, you would reduce the incentive for those who are the most affected by climate change to respond to mitigation action. And if, on the other hand, you adapt without mitigating, you will continue to adapt because yeah. the, 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 the crisis will continue to to go on unabated. So we need a very fine and delicate balance between mitigation and adaptation. The, the Green Climate Fund is the UN's flagship institution for the mobilization of climate finance to developing countries. And in its governing document, it has made a commitment to have a fair balance between mitigation and adaptation because it realizes that both both must go together. Um, Unfortunately, if you look at its portfolio at the moment, it's more tilted towards mitigation because uh, in in most cases, there is a global case to be made. There is a more uh, global commons case to be made um, for for mitigation action and and for a lot of other reasons. Um, But the intention the right thing to do is to have a careful balance between mitigation and adaptation as you say this is a process which involves this interaction between developed countries and developing countries i just wondered how the climate finance agenda kind of interacts with the with other agendas around international aid well, that's that's an, that's a that's a very very interesting question. I mean, that's the preoccupation of my research. So, so let's go back to the beginning again. In 1992, in the build-up to the UNFCCC conference, and UNFCCC is the Framework Convention on Climate Change, the concern of developing countries was that if we have a financial mechanism to support climate action in developing countries, it must be different from existing development assistance. Okay. So in the UN of Triple C, they put a clause to say that climate finance should be new and additional. The, the idea was that, or the interpretation of many developing countries of the expression new and additional, is that it would be new and additional to development assistance, which, mm-hmm. according to the OECD's parameters, should be 0.7 of uh, a country's gross national income, right? And... At the moment, we see that many countries have not complied with 
that's 0 0.7, mm. you know, so, so it's difficult to judge if climate finance is new and additional, right? So we need to understand that development assistance is not obligatory. Right. It's gratuitous, right? If a country does not give development assistance, you can't hold it accountable. You can punish it. You can take the country to the ICJ, right? Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, climate finance is framed in positive obligatory obligatory terms. The Article 4.3 of the Convention says shall, that developed countries shall provide. So shall is a more mandatory expression. The challenge is because development assistance is not obligatory, countries can simply say whatever they give us climate finance is also development assistance. Mm. Or whatever they give us development assistance is climate finance. And we saw this play out very, very practically between 2010 and 2012 when the international community resolved that developing countries should receive $100 billion by 2020. And they entered into an agreement that between 2010 and 2012, there should be a fast start financier, financing mechanism that would give developing countries $10 billion every year, which would total uh, to $30 billion by 2012. The irony of it was that many developing countries, according to an Oxfam report, recycled their development assistance pledges as climate finance. Right. right. So there is an ongoing conversation about how do we separate development assistance from climate finance? Should it be separated? There's a lot of chatter on, on that question. A and it's playing out more clearly, even in the work of the Green Climate Fund currently. And I think the problem arises from the fact that development and climate change are interwoven. Mm. It's hard to separate development from climate change. It's even particularly difficult to bifurcate adaptation from development because many of the tools, many of the tools and strategies used in climate change adaptation are also used in development. Like what? Like poverty education, like helping women and girls afford education. Mm. These are development strategies, but they are also very important for climate change adapt adaptation. Projects like helping farmers in rural areas respond to climate action. You can see the interplay between development and adaptation. So Developed countries would say, ah, we can't distinguish between development and adaptation. Mm. So it makes sense to put the resources together. And so they are dispersed together. But w w my response would be, while it's impossible at some levels to separate development from, ad from adaptation, it's not impossible to separate the financial mechanisms. Mm. So... You cannot, at the point of implementation, say this is a development building and this is a climate change adaptation building. You have to build, construct the infrastructure and account for climate change while you're building it. Mm -hmm. But at the level of mobilizing the funds, we must be able to say this is what would have gone to development anyway if there was no climate change. But because of climate change, this is the new and additional resources that we are putting into this project to respond to climate action. I think that's that's a more prudent way of looking at it. One question I had around this whole debate is the dynamic feels very much kind of imbalanced right. in that it's very much about developed countries right. providing resources to developing countries and telling them how to spend it and doing all this stuff. And right. I wonder whether there's an element to which, or a sense in which that kind of reduces the agency yeah, in yeah. in a political sense of right. the 
developing countries themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder how whether you've got a reflection on that and how it sort of plays out in these discussions around climate financing. Right. Like, yeah, how do yeah. you ensure that developing countries maintain their agency yeah. to make their own decisions? Yeah, yeah. This is an old question that that is um, gaining new implications within the climate finance domain. It's an old development assistance question. Mm-hmm. Um, in the late 80s, up to the early 90s, even up to the late 90s, there were questions about the effectiveness of development assistance. And people argued that developing countries didn't have the agency to um, implement development strategies and that they were imposed on them by developing developed countries. And that's why some would argue that development assistance failed in many, many developing countries. And that concern is also rearing its head in the climate finance domain because the structure is about the same. It's a system of north-south transfer of finance, right? Mm. But over the past um, years, um, there have been responses from international institutions and developing countries to ensure that developing countries have ownership of climate finance resources. And ownership is deconstructed and can be seen in different layers. First, they want developing countries to be able to access the resources through their own institutions. What used to happen was that the World Bank, the UNDP, and other multilateral institutions will receive the money from the Green Climate Fund and implement the projects in developing countries. But there have been developments that have ensured that more developing countries have access, direct access to those climate finance resources. And that means institutions in those developing countries are the ones to receive the funds and implement the projects. Mm. Unfortunately, there is still a disproportionate um, number of projects that go through multilateral financial institutions. And only about 14% of GCF projects, Green Climate Fund's projects, go through direct access entities in developing countries. The major challenge um, that gives rise to that is the fact that many developing countries lack the capacity and institutions that can bid and competently design competitive projects that would scale the very rigorous standards set by the Green Climate Fund. But it's a work in progress. A lot of work needs to be done to help developing countries build capacity. So it's not a case of you need to have money to get money. Just final question then. Obviously, uh, the origins of this of this process that we've been talking about today have are in the early 90s. That's a long time ago now. It's 30 years on. I just wondered whether you had a sense of how well this is going. Has, has the attempt to develop this Green Climate Fund and to find a kind of equitable process for climate financing, has that been a success? And if not, what are the things that could be done better? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's a mixed, it's a mixed story. Uh, the experiences are mixed. Because developing countries um, are not a monolith. Um, We have diverse um, experiences and stories coming from from different developing countries. So uh, the point I made earlier is an important one, direct access. We need to enhance direct access in developing countries, help them build capacity to be able to access these resources directly so they can implement the projects themselves and so that their own personal agenda, individual country agenda, is reflected in the implementation of the projects. A second point is to consider other alternative sources of financing because however generous the Green Climate Fund is, the Green Climate Fund cannot fund the vast majority of projects that are needed to help us respond to climate change. For context, for example, um, the IPPC's estimate says that we are going to need an annual investment of 2.4 trillion US dollars in the energy system alone, Wow! right? Not just in developing countries, but around the world. Um, And developing countries would have a huge chunk of that. 
and we have to do that by 2035, right? And the Green Climate Fund's last re replenishment was about 10 billion US dollars. So that's like a drop in a very massive ocean. Yeah. So we need to consider alternative sources of financing, um, including capital markets. And a lot of developing countries are beginning to respond in that direction, beginning to mobilize funding through green bonds. Um, Nigeria, for example, uh, floated Africa as first sovereign green bonds um, about two years ago and issued another um, set of bonds last year. So there is movement in many developing countries um, in searching for alternative sources of funding without necessarily relying on the Green Climate Fund or the multilateral institution because they know that however um, generous they may be, they just cannot breach that, that very massive gap that we need. So we need an whole-of-government approach, we need an whole-of-society approach, all hands need to be on deck to mobilize all the resources uh, to, to finance climate action in developing countries. Shalua, thank you so much for thank joining us so today. Thank you so much, Ben. Yeah, thank you. So happy to be here. Well, that was really interesting. Thanks so much. Did you enjoy having that chat, Ben? Loved it. Yeah, yeah. it definitely made me aware of how complicated this sort of thing oh. is, especially if you're trying to enable kind of international action on this. And then also that complicating factor of like how things like paying for the effects of climate change also interacts with like foreign aid and development investment and all of these things. It w It's a massive issue. And, and people uh, do want to do the right thing. You yeah. know what I mean? They, but it's about how does one help that or incentivize it within like market mm. forces and all of this stuff. And should you be determining how the money is spent if you're uh, the one who is giving the money? It's so difficult. Or should you just say no here is the money yeah, and let people spend it in a way that makes sense in their context. Oh. That's kind of the, the big sort of it's quandary. isn't it? It's almost like if there were easy answers, it would be easier. But if you enjoyed that interview and haven't already subscribed to one of our new podcast feeds, you should. Why is that, Ben? Because pitch. on the Climate Briefing, a new podcast from Chatham House, you can find out a lot more about issues like that but basically in the run-up to um, the next UN climate negotiations which coronavirus pending will be held in November in Glasgow we will be doing a monthly podcast looking at different aspects of the climate debate with some colleagues from the energy environment and resources department so yeah have a listen to that subscribe it's on iTunes it's all over the place it's on the website it's it is really easy to find it is findable so Ben um, yeah Who's your favourite spy? Favourite spy. Ah, we are you... talking. We're talking literary ah, or film-wise. Just... Yeah, I mean it's it's tricky because actually you banned James Bond. No, um, no, okay, it, I won't ban. You James said that Bond. James Bond was not a thing. No, okay. And I'm actually James... super sad that James Bond has been postponed, man. I was looking forward to that. As inappropriate as James Bond is as a brand, I know. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing Daniel Craig, yeah. the most reluctant Bond. Yeah. In the world, stop being Bond. Okay, fine. If you if you want to say Bond, then you I mean, have to good. say favorite Bond. Ah, oh, favorite Bond. Yeah. Okay. Because uh, otherwise, it's just and and I mean that's true. It's too generic. It's too generic. Okay. Well, I'm going to go Nisha then. Yeah. And I'm going to say that my favorite spy novel. Yeah. Was The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. Which... Ooh. Ben, <laughs> yes, we go Victorian. <laughs> there Excellent. we go. Okay. We're going to go for that. Yeah. Um, which is all about a... Oh, that's um, a cracker. A, and a, the thing is, he's he's one of those heroes that you're supposed to despise. Yeah, he's um, an anti-hero. He's definitely an anti-hero, but it is a super interesting examination of sort of covert action. Yeah. It involves anarchists. It involves bomb plots. Yeah. It involves betrayal and yeah. secrets. And it is... An intensely good read. And if you haven't read any Conrad... It's very entry-level Conrad. It's very entry-level Conrad. Equally, if you haven't read any Conrad, but you liked Apocalypse Now, read Heart of Darkness, which is the book that it's based on. Indeed. And it's one of the most amazing pieces of writing in 
the canon, I would yeah, argue. Full stop. Full stop. So those are my two. Those are the two Conrads. There <laughs> That's we go. a really great. Okay, <laughs> um, I was going to ask you who your favourite detective was, but I realised we're not actually doing interviews. We're not doing detectives, but. Who was your favourite spy? Did you say that? No, Smiley, though. It's, Smiley. It's Smiley. It's George Smiley. I mean, Smiley. you can't go past Le Carre, right? It's but also, great. when it comes to Le Carre, he is the... It, Smiley is... Yeah. It's just his... He's a bit grubby. Not grubby, but he's just a bit shabby. Yeah. And, like, doer. Yeah. And, like, obviously really, really clever, but not showy. And he's yeah. sort of the old man in the corner reading a newspaper in a cafe that you might slightly overlook. Exactly. But then he's got the sharpest brain in the entire world. Yeah. He's the underdog. For sure, the underdog. Well, with that, I think we'll leave you. (laughs) Stay well, listeners. Um, Stay well, listeners. Wash your hands. Wash those hands. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Do not hug anyone. The elbow touching is so naff. Just do a little bow. Have you seen... Yeah, a nod. A nod. Yes. (laughs) A bow from the neck. Yes. Doff your cap. (laughs) Stop touching your face. Yeah. Um, And hopefully we'll see you soon. But we can't promise it might be in the next two weeks. Exactly. Uh, In the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. Undercurrents.